Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major, and welcome back to episode 21 of The Mariner. This is really becoming a thing. There's some, there's some big gaps in there. I know it's been a little while since I last did one. There's been a lot going on, as you know, with the Pride of Nova Scotia project and going west around the world, but uh, that's news I think we'll put into the next podcast. I want to come back now uh, and give you a podcast which is an educational one and where we can learn and discuss about something that's very important, and then we can go and have a quick chat about the the project and what's going on with that at a later date. Subject which came to me really was, um, it came because I had to actually start thinking about this. I'm going to go off and obviously do this trip around the world. I was starting to get equipment together and one of the pieces of equipment I had to get organized was a new life jacket. And you know, where I'm going to go west around the world, um, it's about as rough, it's about as awful as you can possibly imagine. And the risk to me of going over the side of the boat is high. You know, there's no two ways about it. It's high. I did a, uh, a quick calculation before I started this podcast. And at the moment, I'm on about 320,000 miles sailed. So if you say um, that I was doing eight knots on average, remember a lot of the boats that I'm sailing on are uh, boats which cruise at 10 knots, cruise at 12 knots. Um, but sometimes you'll be calmed and that drags the figures down. So let's say I'm doing eight knots. So if I'm doing eight knots for 320,000 miles, that's 40,000 hours of sailing. So I was like, oh my goodness, where's my where's my life going? No wonder I have no clue what's going on from day to day. But it means that for 40,000 hours, I am exposed uh, in some way or another to the risk of going over the side of the boat. And I think once you've been in very harsh conditions in a boat or you've had a couple near misses or you've seen other people involved in near misses, you start to realize really, really quickly that the greatest risk to you is going over the side of the boat. On board the boat, it's light and it's warm and it's friendly and it's all the good things in the world. And if you go into the ocean and you're not connected to the boat, or if you're in a situation where you're tethered to the side of the boat and dragged by the boat, certainly as a solo or shorthanded sailor, you literally will go from wet to dead uh, in minutes. And if you're being dragged by the side of the boat, that can be two minutes. And if you're left in the water without a life jacket uh, or with a life jacket, but unable to get back to the boat, you know, it, you're 20 minutes in cold water, you're an hour in medium temperature water, and it could be many, many, many hours uh, if it's in warm water. So staying connected to the boat, staying above the water, and managing the risk of being dragged by the boat are something which I have to take really seriously. Um, and for me, I think if I'm 100% honest, I have a kind of a bit of a double standards attitude to life jackets. Because I've been doing sail training for so long, for 20, 20 years now, okay? 20, yeah, pretty much pretty much all of my sailing has either been, okay, a bit on super yachts, a bit on race boats with other people, but pretty much, if you said quarter of a million miles of sail training, I've spent a quarter of a million miles telling other people to put their life jackets on. But what ends up happening is that you start to feel like, well, you know, they need to because it's dangerous for them, but I'm here all the time. I'm tens of thousands of hours into this, like I can handle this. But the nature of an accident is that it's an unforeseen circumstance, that something happens that you're not expecting and then some kind of bad thing comes out the back of that. So what can we do about it? How can we limit that risk? Well, you know, not to hide behind the obvious here, but you gotta wear your life jacket. I've gotta wear my life jacket. And I love having crew on the boat who are happy to call me to task and say, hey, Chris, you not got your life jacket on. And I love the attitude 
with all sorts of things on boats. I love it when people can give you feedback and it's constructive and they're not trying to criticize you. We've had that um, podcast a couple months back about not shouting. It is possible to give people really important, useful feedback without it being some kind of attack on them. And if someone can say, hey, you need to put your life jacket on, it's not because uh, they want to get on top of you about something. It's because they can see maybe a little bit further over the horizon metaphorically than you can or that you are in that moment and they identifying a risk. At the end of the day, sailing, the sailing that we do, let's be honest, is um, it's recreational. It's not something where we're not transporting things from A to B. It's not wartime. And so there is no reason not to be wearing a life jacket. Now, why don't people wear a life jacket? I read a report which said that um, US boating had done a survey and found that only 23% of boaters of an estimated 80 million in the US, only 23% were regularly wearing life jackets. And in a survey, 55% said that uh, it shouldn't be compulsory to wear it on a, uh, on a recreational boat, on a leisure boat. And I, I'm always behind people having the freedom to make their own decisions. But within that, I think it is possible to develop a culture where putting a life jacket on is, is a normal thing that you do. And people that would agree with me always point at the fact that, you know, you put your life jacket on, your life jacket, you put your seatbelt, don't put your life jacket on in your car, that's not very wise. You put your seatbelt on in your car, whether or not uh, you're expecting to have an accident. Um, it is this weird thing that people are subject to this level of self-denial and we've talked about this before where you have this thing of you have this continuum of things that are behind you that you've experienced which don't include dying on a boat by not having a life jacket on and so your little monkey brain is only able to make judgments about the future based on what has happened before i haven't died on a boat previously so therefore i will not die on a boat in the future um obviously clearly that's not quite exactly how life works out so what we try to do as intelligent people is we try and do these things which can help us which can become a beneficial part of our lives even though we haven't experienced that thing insurance you've got insurance on your car okay the state the province the country whatever tells you've got to have it but it's because we have all started to agree that insurance on the car is important but you don't intend to have an accident um you know, we need to look at life jackets in the same view, but life jackets have got a bad rap over the years because they are, you know, an uncomfortable, unfashionable, and barely practicable piece of equipment. And so the criticism, even in the 70s and 80s, I don't want to wear a life jacket because uh, it's uncomfortable, because it, you know, restricts my movement. That's totally understandable. But that was then, and this is now. And certainly in the last, 15 years, I would say, really from the introduction of the Spinlock Deck Fest, which if you don't know, it, is that kind of black, very cool looking life jacket the Spinlock bought out. I think it was the early 2000s. I remember I got my first one in 2008 and it was relatively new then. From that point onwards, um, life jackets got cool. Life jackets got comfy. And it's just been a development and a development the whole way along. So I'm just going to take you quickly through some of the the history of life jackets, which actually, you know, I have actually got notes for once. I have actually been doing some reading. It's not just entirely off the cuff as it normally is. But, you know, what's what's the problem that the life jacket's trying to help you with? What, why, why are we being told to wear this piece of equipment? Well, if you go in the water and you're face down, you're going to die. Okay, so it's something that's there 
to help turn you over. Now at this point, early on, we can make a very clear uh, demarcation between two pieces of equipment. A PFD, a personal flotation device, is something that you have with you which allows you to assist in your flotation of your body, okay? Now what's interesting is that, like on airplanes, the seats are personal flotation devices on some of the airplanes that don't regularly go over water. If you've got something, even something quite small, that can just give you that little bit of buoyancy to get uh, over your body's slightly uh, negative buoyancy, if you've just got a little something, and the estimates I saw is that between seven and 10 pounds of lift, that's between three and a half and 10 kilos of extra lift, something that's just got a, a volume of between um, like something that's about the size of a bag of spuds basically that kind of size is the difference between life and death now a personal flotation device either through inflation or through foam or through the inherent characteristics of something like balsa or um, k-park or these older fat older uh, fibers we're going to discuss it just gives you that ability to get up and when you get up that means you can get your head out of the water and when you're in cold conditions getting your head out of the water is very, very important for avoiding hypothermia because such a huge amount of your body heat can be lost through hypothermia. If you can get your neck, your jugular uh, arteries, and your, your head clear of the water, you're already streets ahead. If you're up a little bit higher, more visibility, you can be seen more. A personal flotation device is a wearable or throwable device which offers that small amount of buoyancy which can be the difference between life or death. Separate to that, is a life jacket. Now, a life jacket is a PFD, but not all PFDs are life jackets, okay? So what's the deciding thing? What's the, 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 the key ingredient that we could say makes a life jacket? Well, I'd say the fundamental one is that a life jacket can roll the user over inside of five seconds, bringing the airway to a position where you can breathe basically it will roll you over okay if you've got a pfd which if you're doing things like water skiing or kayaking um, a pfd which is the life jacket and i'm doing the little air air quotes bunny uh <laughs> thing here in the air here we call them life jackets but it's not a life jacket it's a pfd it's just there to kind of keep you up but if you're in a kayaking instant if you're in some kind of water skiing instant you're just as likely to be face down in the water, maybe even a little bit more so because of the way your legs hinge to your hips, you're more likely to be face down than face up. So we're discussing here today life jackets. So life jackets are something which really started to come around and started to be used early on in the, well, for us basically, for the life jacket as it is now, we're looking at the change between wooden ships and metal ships. Once ships started to go to metal, there was a lot less stuff floating in the ocean after a shipwreck or some kind of incident. And sailors, there was a massive increase in the number of sailors that died because there was nothing to hold on to. If you've got, you know, you can get tattoos now, which uh, if you're some kind of super keen sailor or you're in the merchant service, you can get that uh, chicken and pig tattoo, right? And that's meant to be very lucky. And that's because the chicken and pigs tended to survive because they're inside wooden crates and the wooden crates would uh, float, right? That's where that tattoo style comes from. So there's actually a book, of course there's a book about everything, but there's a book been written by a guy called Dr. Christopher Brooks. And he wrote a book called Design for Life, Life Jackets Through the Ages. And he identifies this point in the 1850s um, where life jackets became important. He writes this, quote, 
with wooden ships if there was a shipwreck there was plenty of floating debris spars and masts for sailors to hang on to iron ships of course don't float so drowning deaths went up and it became necessary to develop life jackets for those on board at that point life jackets have already been around for a long time and we can see on marble carvings in the british museum from 870 bc which is you know knocking on the door of 3,000 years ago, Assyrian soldiers swimming whilst holding onto inflated animal skins. So the idea of keeping the body up and out of the water is nothing new. This is a 3,000-year-old uh, issue that we're still dealing with. In the early 19th century, though, we start to see advertisements for Malison's Seaman's Friend and Bather's Companion. <laughs> which is a jacket. You could only have that kind of title from that period, can you? It's a jacket made out of cork sheets, which was attached with a strap that went up through the legs. And Bather's Companion was the other thing, because it's real nice to go in the water, but if you're not a strong swimmer, then you just want to be held up that little bit. And of course, that still exists today. By the 19th century, then we have the beginning of the first kinds of uh, life jackets or let's keep calling them personal flotation devices, but the first jackets that were designed to help us float easier. Um, and the most famous of those was designed by Captain Ward, who was an inspector for the Royal National Lifeboat Institution in, in the UK. And they would be um, uh, jackets which had uh, pockets in them that were filled with balsa wood or cork, uh, or maybe even K-pock. The thing was though, that there was no international regulation about how these jackets were Put together the function of them or anything else or how many had to be on board until the international convention for the safety of life at sea which is solas which we'll see solas in all sorts of things to do with life-saving equipment that was held in 1913 and of course that date is very important because the regulations regarding life jackets and life boats came about after the sinking of the titanic so again we had to have something disastrous go wrong before we started to change our attitude towards it. And that chap, Dr. Christopher Brooks, points out there always has to be a terrible accident to produce any changes in life-saving technology. No work gets done until there's a significant push to do so. And I've actually had a couple friends who have gone into the water, thank goodness, knock on wood, no one has ever gone off a boat that I've been uh, the skipper of or been on board. But I have a friend who went into the water. She was um, racing with her father and her brother and uh, she went into the water, none of them wearing life jackets, it wasn't part of their boat culture. Um, it was cold conditions in the UK. She was in the water, quite visible. They were trying to turn this boat around. It had no engine, it was just a small keel boat, a racing keel boat. Um, by the time they got back to her, um, as she gave the story to me, um, she really felt that she didn't have much longer that she could keep herself above the water. That's just a very simple, very down-to-earth, normal experience that someone had. Her entire family culture and very experienced, very knowledgeable sailors, her entire family culture changed at that moment and now life jackets are mandatory on the boat. You don't need to have some giant, awful, terrible, world-changing experience uh, before you change things. We already have lots of lessons down through the ages to be able to get past this stuff. And we need to knock on our own heads and not be too uh, wooden about this and understand that putting this piece of equipment on uh, can save your life in the event that something that you cannot tell is coming happens. 
Okay, so the SOLAS convention in 1914 then uh, was the beginning of the IMO, the International Maritime Organization. That started in 1948 and that's the UN agency which has responsibility for international maritime safety and over 170 uh, countries and states are part of that. So what the IMO is doing with merchant sailors is you know all over the world. It's not just like they've got a bit of an idea. This is tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of merchant sailors around the world are taught if you go into the water and you don't have this safety piece of safety equipment on you're going to die. And yet with boating and with sailing um, it's kind of like a you know if you want to you can wear one <laughs> it's like it's all a bit back to front so going forward during the second world war of course another time where lots of people ended up in the water and that's where we get the beginning of the may west and during the research that i did for this uh, podcast i discovered for the first time why that style of life jacket is called the may west do you know this so may west was a particularly buxom and curvaceous uh, pinup from the wartime period and uh, when those two large inflatable bladders inflated on the front of the new style life-saving jackets um, that were developed during wartime once those two big bladders inflated well it gave the wearer a more than passing resemblance to the eponymous actress Mae West so um, Mae West became a very important part of the safety equipment and another thing I found out during this research. Like I'm learning all the time, right? I'm always ready to have more stuff stuffed into my head. Did you know there's something called the Goldfish Club? Have you ever heard of this? The Goldfish Club is for downed pirate, uh, pirate, <laughs> downed pirates, for downed pilots who have been saved by life jackets or by inflatable boats or by other means. So there's a little symbol on the badge and they have a little uh, goldfish with two white wings and some waves beneath and it identifies those people who have been saved by this life-saving equipment. There's about 500 people worldwide now. You can pay five pounds and be a member if you think you can be in that, uh, in that uh, very elite band. But at the end of the war, there was like 9,000 people in this because they were saving a lot of lives. So the Mae West was the beginning of inflatable life jackets. It meant that you had a life jacket's life-saving ability or rather uh, a flotation device that was in a jacket, which was you know your cork and bolster from before, suddenly it was made usable and useful. Your flight suit could have included in it something that inflated that gave you that all-important extra bit of um, flotation that you needed to save your life and to roll you over from um, unconscious face down in the water to unconscious with your mouth above the water, which is such a key ingredient of a life jacket as opposed to a PFD. Not to be confused, as a couple of my friends keep calling them as PDFs, um, which is something totally different. And this was happening on the, uh, the, the, in the UK with a guy called Dr. Edgar Pask. Um, he worked for the RAF Institution of Aviation Medicine in Farnborough, but it was also happening uh, over the water in Germany because both parties, both sides of the war, recognized that if you could just give these pilots this um, this piece of life-saving equipment you got your pilot back or at least they survived or you know there was some other option other than death so it's uh, it's hardly a, a new idea to, to put one of these things on what I did find out also was very interesting is that um, here I am in Nova Scotia as you know and just up the road from me about one hour's drive in Dartmouth is the Cord Group which um, they have a mission which has been to uh, enhance human performance in extreme environments through research and evaluation 
of protection technology. Can you tell I'm reading? But I didn't know. They're just literally up the road. And they have uh, thermally, thermally instrumented mannequin test system, uh, or the Tim, he's called. Um, and he can then find out uh, by putting him into extreme situations, this mannequin with all these sensors inside, and find out um, how protection apparel and thermal insulation uh, options uh, are going to help people in the water. So they're right up the way. So maybe there's an opportunity to take the uh, podcast up there and interview someone with uh, all the COVID things in mind, if we can make that happen and find out more about this from the inside. But yeah, they do the research, which actually leads us to have this understanding of how people are going to react in these extreme circumstances. So anyway, back to it. <laughs> there's always going to be a few kind of tangents whenever I'm uh, presenting anything. The thing that's most important with the life jackets is that, yeah, asphyxia from being face down in the water, you need to roll over. Hypothermia. Hypothermia means below temperature. Hypothermic people, their temperature drops super, super low and your body then is unable to function properly. So being able to lift the head and the neck clear of the water makes things a lot easier for the body to try and maintain some kind of uh, temperature uh, that you can survive in. Fatigue is the other thing, you know, if you're having to move your arms and legs, you're having to keep uh, yourself uh, head above water. I, as you know, have done a lot of work with Outer Bound and the most original Outer Bound course, which was done in Abu Dhabi in, in uh, Wales in the war years, 1942, I think they started it. Um, that was called the Drown Proofing Course. And the basic concept of the course was that young seamen, and it was just men at that time, would be coming to the course and they were often very very young like teenage young and they didn't have the strength of character and the strength of spirit to be able to get through a really serious life-threatening event like being torpedoed and ending up in the water potentially injured in the middle of the North Atlantic. What the course sought to do and that was the early origins of Outward Bound was to build their personal belief and their confidence in their ability to survive and their communication skills, their leadership and team working skills in some kind of effort to help them get through that at a mental level. The other part of the course was actually literally giving them the skill of being able to tread water for a very long time. So each day they would go and they would tread water in cotton pants and a woolen jumper um, right there in the river at Abu Dhabi. And as the 21 days of the course went by, they would tread water for a longer and longer period of time until finally, on the final day of the course, the final challenge was that they were taken uh, upriver to a sandbank. The tide would come in, completely and utterly um, flood the area. They would then be treading water and it would take them you know, a couple of hours to drift with the outgoing river back down to the school and they had to tread water for that period of time. Like, Can you imagine even now, like Jeepers, treading water for two hours with cotton trousers and a woolen jumper on, like, that's pushing it. I, I'm relatively fit, but I'm also realistic. And uh, yeah, that's a big thing. So, you know, that's the skill set you're going to have to have if your plan is to go into the water and then save your own life by treading water. How much easier is it to have a life jacket inflate or have something that you don? which just allows you to conserve your energy, conserve your calories and put that into saving yourself. So asphyxia, hypothermia and fatigue are the three things that the life jacket's trying to help you with. And let's not discount from this the fact that pretty much all modern life jackets 
include a harness. So back in the day, it was possible to get a life jacket. I remember my dad's foul weather gear. It had two little eyelets right up on the chest and they were for a life jacket to be donned and then two little buckles would go through those loops and that would secure the life jacket uh, yeah, can we still call it that? Yeah, life jacket or the life jacket bladders would go onto and be attached to your waterproof jacket and then a buckle would go around your waist. The harness element which has come in now, which is the fact that there's a chest harness built in, gives us that big attachment loop at the front, which means not only is the life jacket there to protect you when you go into the water, but it's also there to stop you going into the water. And we're going to discuss that a little bit later on because inherent to that is another great risk we must be aware of, i.e. being dragged by your tether. But if you cannot fall off the boat is massively advantageous and you know discounts the requirement for any of the rest of this stuff. Just stay on the boat as best you can. But the life jacket now keeps you connected to the boat then once you're in the water, as long as it is a life jacket and not a personal flotation device, it will roll you over, which stops the risk of asphyxia. If you're in the water, cold water, for a longer period of time, it helps you negate hypothermia because it keeps your head above the water and it means that you're not going to have to be burning calories to keep yourself up. So these are all good things. If you have a strong desire to survive, these are four key elements <laughs> that you want to have in your tactic for dealing with this problem. I'm always aware of the kind of the, the offshore racing sort of community that I'm uh, part of. There's a feeling that the French call it naturaliste, which is that um, if the sea wants to take you, then the sea will take you, right? And it's the skill of the sailor to stay attached to the boat by holding on and by lodging yourself in these little corners and all this kind of stuff. And this very kind of... Um, spiritual kind of like dreamy rosy-eyed connection with the ocean like if the ocean wants to take you then it will take you you know and you, no i call bullshit on that i'm sorry but uh if you i don't believe as you should know if you've been listening to this for a while i don't believe in any superstition the things that you need to believe in is your skill set your team your boat your safety equipment your preparation plan the strength of your hands the quickness of your mind the clarity of your mind these are the things that are going to say keep you safe at sea not some dreamy-eyed like don't mention rabbits don't change the name of the boat we shouldn't sail on fridays who's got the banana on board all that stuff is utter crap throw it away and repack your first aid kit and survival kit with real world things that actually are going to help life jackets are so fundamentally important to your survival that you literally identify yourself as being clueless or, I don't know, buried in self-denial when you make the argument that you don't need one. That's, <laughs> I think that's pretty strongly put. That's where it's at, right? Like, let's not get confused. With some of the solo stuff I do, there's no point in wearing a life jacket because, uh, who exactly is coming back for me when I'm sailing on my own, right? Now, I have my own solution to that. I have created this deck assist belt, which I think actually we're going to be looking to sell quite soon. And that's a belt, really strong belt, very much along the lines of the, uh, the, the, the waist belt that is on a modern life jacket. Big D-ring that you connect your tether onto. And that is on me all the time because the nature of my sailing is that um, I get woken up at a moment's instant. It always seems to be when something's going wrong. I jump out into the cockpit and all sorts of things could be happening very, very fast. And because I'm wearing that belt literally while I'm sleeping, it's got my knife, it's got my Gerber, and it's got a connection point. Now, 
Can you take a fall hard onto your waist? No, we know that, where you cannot go climbing with a waist belt on. But circus performers will have a waist belt on. It can provide a certain amount of uh, you know, high fall security as long as certain physical parameters are not exceeded. On tall ships, which is what I started out on, we would have canvas belts that went around our waists. And when we got to the yards, we would clip on. As long as you're not falling more than a couple of feet, that's a great way of stopping yourself. And certainly when the option is nothing or that, it's flipping brilliant. So combine that with a good centrally mounted uh, clip-on point, which on the Open 60 on Pride of Nova Scotia, I have in the cockpit a, literally what happens is I have a tether which is attached to the center of the cockpit. And um, when I go into the cabin, I disconnect it from myself. And as I exit the cabin, like religiously, I clip it back on myself. So as soon as I get into the cabin, uh, into the cockpit, sorry, I am connected to the boat, right? And then if I wanna go up side decks, I then use the second clip on my belt to connect onto it. So I've always got double clipping, but I'm doing it in my own way. Um, wearing a life jacket for me, it would be tricky to sleep in it. It would be tricky to be taking it on and off with a lot of gear I've got. So I have this other thing. And see, I'm calling it like a deck assist belt. I'm not saying that it's any kind of safety equipment. It just assists me in my safety when I'm on the deck, but that's my solution. If you're with a crew on a boat, even if you're with one other person on the boat, you have to be wearing a life jacket because they potentially can come back and get you and that increases your survival massively. Okay, so let's go on because I get <laughs> I get myself bogged down. Okay, so um, life jackets, as we know, uh, even up until the 90s, we were mostly dealing with like foam-filled life jackets, those uh, orange things with the neck collars and everything. And um, they were pretty inconvenient, you know? Um, the newer inflatable ones have started to become recognized from the 1990s, pretty much globally, they're recognized as a, a life-saving device. But we need to understand what we're getting into when we're getting a, uh, a life jacket, which is not inflated, uh, you know, st normally when you're wearing it. And I, I've got a, a life jacket here with me right, right now. And um, on it, it has a label which says, this is not a life jacket until it's inflated, which seems pretty obvious, but not necessarily obvious to all. These things, if they're not maintained, if they're not looked after, if they're not understood, if they're not correctly set up, are no good. They do nothing, okay? So the basic system with a modern life jacket is that you've got um, a CO2 uh, cylinder, a 38 gram cylinder, which has got a volume of about 17 liters of gas in it. That is gonna expand uh, out of the cylinder. Once it's the, the seal of the cylinder is breached, it's gonna expand into the bladder, which is inside the life jacket. Most life jackets are 150 newtons. We'll get back to that in a second. There are 150 newton life jackets, and they have an internal volume in the bladder of about 15 liters. When you pressurize, 15 liters about 10 percent over you get a nice tight bladder the 17 liters of co2 is discharged into a 15 liter capacity it pressurizes about 110 percent you've got a nice tight um, bladder around your neck uh, which is going to roll you over in that five seconds which is specified by solas and then it's going to um, keep your head above the water as we want and it's going to give you that option to be seen and to see what's going on in your rescue. Okay, so let's take a moment now and discuss how these modern inflating life jackets work. It's been a really key development in life jacket wearing and 
the argument that there should be no reason you've not got a life jacket on, the fact that it goes from really tucked up tight and rolled into a very easy to wear piece of equipment and then inflates into this giant volume which saves our lives, that's been the difference between the life jackets of the 18th, 19th, 20th century and into the life jackets that are now hopefully finally able to give us um, some security against the risk of drowning while we're at sea. The key element in all this is the inflator. The inflator is the part which holds the CO2 cylinder. It then has a, a string that you can pull which um, jams a hollow sharp needle like a hypodermic needle but bigger, jams that into the uh, nose of the cylinder, pierces the seal and allows the gas to come out of the cylinder into the jacket. If there's nothing else on the inflator apart from a string, then it is a fully manual jacket. And there are some circumstances when a manual jacket is preferable. A lot of people that work on the bow of uh, sailing boats um, will have it in their mind that they may need to wear a manual jacket. I say it very cautiously because I've done a lot of um, offshore sailing and the number of jackets that actually go off on the foredeck is very low and more often is actually caused by the fact that the jacket has been wet for a long time and that that has slowly started to seep water into the auto inflate bobbin and then finally a wave on the bow sets it off. It shouldn't be something that we're too worried about happening. It doesn't really matter if your life jacket goes up off from the point of view of you should have cylinders and automatic inflate bobbins on the boat in store ready to use. The only issue is if having the life jacket on then leads to the wearer being in more danger, i.e. that a wave can then drag you away or that you get pinned in some position or the sails get interact with you in a negative way. That would be the only time that we'd really be worried. Um, but those who are up on the bow uh, may choose to go to a manual or to the other kind of inflator we're going to discuss in a second, which is the Hamar hydrostatic one. But let's just focus on this most basic of sorts. The automatic inflation bobbin that we're discussing here, this unit which screws onto the bottom of the uh, inflator, turns it from being a manual inflate, where you pull the string and the life jacket inflates, makes it automatic. How does it do that? Inside this bobbin, which screws on the bottom, which looks like a... Um, half a packet of lifesavers, like black plastic little thing that screws on the bottom. Um, inside there is a strong spring which is encapsulated in salt and when salt gets in through the end of the bobbin, through little vents that are provided for that there, the water melts the salt, the salt releases the spring and the spring pushes up on the mechanism and pushes that hollow needle up into the seal on the cylinder and releases the gas to inflate the bladder. It's very simple, it works very well, and rearming your life jacket, i.e. replacing a cylinder which has been used or replacing a salt bobbin which has been used is relatively cheap. We should always, and actually if you do races, um, most of you, the uh, authorities that I've ever raced with will make sure that you have extra cylinders and extra bobbins on board so you can rearm a life jacket that's gone off. That method, that, that mechanism, is manufactured by a company called UML, uh, United Moldings Limited, and the most basic of them you'll see is a yellow one, which is called the Mark V, and it just allows for that manual or automatic inflation. A little bit more advanced from uh, UML is their uh, ProSensor Elite, and that's identified by the fact that it's white and it has two status indicators on it. If the bobbin has gone off previously, that status indicator will be red on the lower section of the inflator. If the cylinder has been used previously and it's empty and discharged, 
the upper status indicator will go red. So by very quickly looking uh, through a, a transparent or translucent pane on the front of your life jacket, you should be able to see that status indicator and it'll tell you whether the cylinder is in position uh, correctly and is uh, charged and it'll tell you whether the bobbin is in uh, position correctly and whether it is uh, still functional and usable. Um, those status indicators really make it very easy for you to check your life jacket. So I like the UML style because it's cheap to rearm. It's easy to check the status of both components, the cylinder and the um, auto inflate. And uh, you can get them anywhere. Really, you can get them all through the Caribbean, Mediterranean, anywhere I've ever built. You can always get rearm kits for, for UML inflators. More advanced than that, in, in some ways, is the new one from Hammer, which is called their MA1. And the MA1 is an auto-inflator which um, uses hydrostatic pressure. When the unit goes 10 centimeters below the surface of the water, uh, pressure releases the gas from the cylinder, and then your life jacket inflates. Um, if you're working on the bow of a boat and getting wet and getting constantly hammered by waves is something you're very worried about or if there's not very many opportunities to dry out your life jacket and prevent the incursion of salt water into the salt tablet on your UML inflator, a Hamar MA1 inflator is perhaps a good idea. I would say there's a couple small downsides that you need to be aware of. The upside obviously being, um, you know, it doesn't go off when you're on the bow. The downside being you do have to go more than 10 centimeters underwater. And if you watch Hamar's own testing of someone jumping into a swimming pool with a dry suit, a thick neoprene dry suit on, if the body doesn't go 10 centimeters below, or rather if that part of the life jacket doesn't go 10 centimeters below the water, it will fail to go off. Um, which could create a problem. Sometimes when people go over the sides of the boat, particularly off the lee side of the boat, you slip under the guard wires and you're slipping off basically directly into the water. That kind of incident is often um, the result of uh, some kind of head injury. You're uh, injured in the head, you hit the deck, you roll off and roll under the guard wires and then you're gone through the side of the boat. If that was to happen, um, that would be a problem for this kind of inflator. So you have to decide always, you know, where you're at, what's likely to be happening. Um, I would say also if you're in a, a issue where you go over the side of the boat with a short tether and you're not able to go down below the water, that means that your life jacket will not go off. And you have to be a little bit cautious about that because a lot of the holding force that a chest harness has in the event of it being like a life jacket thing you're tethered at the front or tethered at the back depending on what kind of life jacket you've got if the life jacket is not inflated the issue could be that the um uh, the, the the actual harness will slip off you remember that the crotch straps on a life jacket are there to stop the life jacket riding up and in the event that you're unconscious that the life jacket could ride off the top of your body if you're being dragged in the water alongside the boat, either by the front or by the back, the main point is that if the life jacket doesn't go off and your arms do go up above your head, which might well happen as you're being dragged uh, in the water, certainly when you're being dragged forwards, um, that jacket may not be able to stay on you. It's going to be relying on the crotch straps a lot more. So Hammer, I think it's fantastic technology. I haven't used it myself. But I will say this, in all of the miles that I've ever done, I think I've only ever had a life jacket go off like five times uh, unexpectedly. What I did do when I was a clipper skipper is we used to pull the, we had a lot, we bought a lot of those cylinders um, uh, just because you know there's 22 people on the boat and you're probably gonna be having life jackets go off for one thing or another. I would quite often pull people's life jackets just to make sure that it went off. It shouldn't be something that we're scared to put 
you know into operation and make sure it's right at this juncture what i could say is something which has become very important to me is that the life jackets that we had at the time when i kept pulling them to like see if people's life jackets went off um only half the life jacket often inflated and that scared the bejesus out of me because that will not roll you over in fact it will actually end up putting you on your side and that's an issue and we traced it in the end down to the fact that when that cylinder screws into the auto inflator it needs to be tight yeah like tight 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 like a tiger you got to get it in there and it's got to be tight oftentimes when we're dealing with threads on an engineering system you just snug things up like if you know you're tying a, uh, if you if you're tightening up a carabiner gate you don't like super over tighten it because then because of the strain on the carabiner you can lock it in it's not the same it's creating a gas seal and if those cylinders are not cranked down tight and if you've got the the newer version of the uh, UML inflator the um, ProSensor Elite that uh, green to red status indicator needs to be fully in the green that cylinder's got to be hard down otherwise as the gas flows through the inflator attempting to get to the bladder of a life jacket uh, the life jacket is contained inside its cover it's zipped in it's velcroed in whatever it is it is hard for the gas to open it up if there's a way for it to leak out past the cylinder threads it may well take that course of action rather than inflating the second half of the bladder so just be cautious with that that those cylinders are in tight that you have a good supply of bobbins and of uh, cylinders that you're regularly checking it one thing i will say about the hammer which i really like i have got into difficulties in the past getting checked by the royal ocean racing club going into a race down in the caribbean my own fault the cylinders on the life jackets had got corroded during the boat sitting for two months before we took it for this race the cylinders were rusting and corroding because they're exposed, their inside life jackets clearly hadn't been dried properly before they were put away, and that meant that the cylinder itself was uh, substandard from where it should have been. There should be no corrosion on the cylinder. With the hammer unit, that inflator, um, it, it comes off and it leaves a large aperture in the bladder, and the cylinder goes through that aperture and actually ends up protected inside the bladder for the duration of its stored life. So that means that that cylinder is much more protected than it ever would have been on a UML unit. So highs and lows there. I think either are good. I think um, for me personally, I've always used the UML ones. I have no problem with that. Um, I think because my fear would be getting knocked unconscious and sliding off the side of the boat in some situation on my boat, um, and I'm very aware of the fact that I have a you know a larger boat in the 60 where the jack stays are further away from the edge of the boat. My concern would be that I'd be clipped on, get knocked unconscious, roll off the side of the boat, and I may not have enough depth when I go into the water to set off the hammer unit. So for myself, I choose the um, the UML unit. I think that um, for those in different circumstances on different boats, the hammer may be a great solution. So that's how it gets inflated uh, that has been the revolution which has meant that life jackets have gone from being difficult and uncomfortable clumsy piece of equipment and now they are transported to where they can be ergonomic they can be slick they can be comfortable they can be fashionable even um, and yet retain this incredibly important uh, element that they can save your life now modern life jackets are built and designed to very specific regulations and at the heart of that if we discount vagaries in particular countries and states and what kind of thing at the very heart of that is the SOLAS regulations which came fundamentally out of the sinking of the Titanic that is the 
wonderful thing that we have to always remember with sailing is that we are the latest generation of people connected to a 5,000 year old history. You know, from the first bearskin going up a rig to support a little coracle or raft or something crossing between islands to today, the continuum that we are but the latest part of. And it is inherent in everything that we do that the lessons of the past should be remembered. So the Solas rules for life jackets, which came directly out of Leonardo DiCaprio not being able to fit on that door with Kate Winslet. Those regulations state that a life jacket should not be able to support the combustion process or continue melting after being fully enveloped with fire for two seconds, okay? So that is the structure of the jacket. Now, modern jackets are made of FTPU, which has a melting point of over 160 Celsius. So that means that you could have a flash fire, goes up, two seconds of fire, and then this thing is A, not gonna keep burning, that'd be kind of bad, but I can imagine it was part of the balsa cork issue, and it's not gonna melt. Um, if it's been engulfed in fire for two seconds. Okay, this is quite interesting. It could be properly put on for one minute without help, guidance or preliminary demonstration. So that means that if you had a minute to look at it, you could work out how to put it on. That is a distinctive part of the rules that come from Solas. It cannot be some like crazy mishmash of buckles and wires and loops. It has to be something that you can understand with only a minute to go through it. So the next part goes straight into that, follows straight into that. It says it can be worn in only one way and exclude the possibility of being put on incorrectly. So again, to the original designers of these things, you could have all sorts of variations. Um, I'm not sure actually that some life jackets necessarily adhere to that. I have seen people I guess I've seen them put them on like inside out and twisted belts and all kinds of things or certainly looking at them pretty confused but basically the method, you find two methods with life jackets, either that kind of waistcoat style that you, you put it on as a waistcoat would be put on and undo, then, then do up the buckle in the middle or you're going to have some kind of pull over the top like the Mustang ones, pull over the top and do the buckle at the side but it should be that you can look at it and you can work out how it works within one minute. And then the last part of that is that um, having had tuition on how to fit it, it can be donned within one minute. So there's some pretty clear things there saying, hey, you know, whatever this thing is, it's got to be easy to wear. It says that it will allow the wearer to jump from a height of at least 4.5 meters, which is is pretty high, you know, 4.5 meters is what, like 17 feet or something? Uh, maybe a little bit less, so 15 feet. 15 feet into the water without injury and damage the life jacket. Now this brings up a particular thing because all different types of users on the water require different types of life jackets, potentially, okay? If you're doing serious offshore sailing, or any kind of sailing really, you're gonna need a, a life jacket which is very easy to put on and off, allows you to connect yourself to the boat, it's probably got a spray shield in there, it's probably got leg loops in there, it's got a whistle, it's got a light, it's got all these things we expect. But if you're water skiing, or if you're using a jet ski, you're gonna need something that can withstand an impact at 50 kilometers an hour going into the water. Now, that means that if you are someone who has extensive um, 
uh, interaction with the water. You might be paddling, you might be got a jet ski, you've maybe going sailing as well. You may need different life jackets for them. If you've got a paddler's life jacket for, for kayaking, it's gonna be quite short in the body because you need that articulation, that rotation in your trunk to paddle properly. If you're gonna go water skiing, you can maybe afford it to go a little bit further down your body and that might actually protect you from impact should you, you know, uh, well, you're gonna do, aren't you? <laughs> Certainly if you do the way I do it, you're gonna come up and hit the water. You can get some protection for your kidneys and for your, you know, uh, your, your stomach and what have you when you hit the water. But then when you go offshore sailing, those jackets are not intended to hit the water hard. They just need to be able to do what they do with minimal risk of, you know, you're not gonna be hitting the water at 50 kilometers an hour. Although, hey, you know, do we now need to be talking about the fact that what life jacket do you wear when you're on a trimaran, which is doing 35 knots? Maybe they do need to think about a different kind of life jacket, but whatever it is you're doing, you need to suit your life jacket to the activity. Um, it says, in the, to continue the SOLAS regulations, uh, it says it's got to maintain buoyancy and not decrease by f more than 5% after 24 hours of immersion, okay? This is something we're going to talk about maintenance and looking after life jackets a little bit later on here, but there has to come a point, at least, you know, if you're not using a life jacket that much, once a year, or if you're using it a lot once a month, where you inflate your life jacket for 24 hours and see if it goes down at all. And there's the amount, 5%. 5% is gonna take it from being tight and taut in the bladder to a little bit kind of soft and, and, and mushy, okay? The point here is so you need to know whether it's leaking a lot. And it's been my experience to do a lot of um, uh, jumping in the water, life jackets, uh, life rafts, that kind of training for the STCW. Uh, regulations for commercial operation on boats and it is very interesting to see uh, members of the general public come in with their life jacket because you you know you bring your own jump in the water and it doesn't go off uh, it only goes off on one side or it goes off and then immediately starts leaking and that's often to do with the fact that the jacket is old it hasn't been tested it hasn't been set up right so we'll be talking about that a little bit later on but just having the jacket of course is not really the whole story um, the next part of the SOLAS things, it says it should raise the head of an exhausted or unconscious person by at least 120 millimeters, which is what, 12, 12 centimeters. So that's about four inches, four or five inches. It gets the head of the person four to five inches from the water with the body tilted back at an angle of at least 20 degrees from the vertical position. So you're not upright, you are tilted back. Uh, and it should turn the body of an unconscious person in the water from any position to a place where the mouth is cleared of water in no more than five seconds. And lastly, in this section, it should allow a person wearing it to swim for a short distance and board a rescue boat. So I think what we take from this is that whether you do a lot of um, in-water training, you should have the experience of being in the water with your life jacket on. I see a lot of boats where the life jackets are brand spanking new or old and moldy, uh, but they none of them show any evidence at all of ever being used. One thing to be aware of is the fact that salt water, particularly salt water on the jacket and left to dry, um, yeah, it'll bleach it a little bit. It may rust a little thing here and there, but if it's uh, got a little bit of salt water on it, and it's allowed to uh, dry off, it's not gonna mold because the acidity level is too high for it to mold. If it's sitting there in the closet all the time and you've got the wet environment inside a boat, it's gonna mold and go nasty, okay? Getting it out and using it 
is not an inappropriate use of a piece of safety equipment. Safety equipment is something that should be on the boat and is clearly understood. There's an old rule in well, a lot of industries, but particularly in big, big boat sailing, is that you never do something new in an emergency. Okay, You never do something new in an emergency. What happens is that you think, oh man, maybe I can solve this problem by doing and you go and do something completely different than has ever been done before and you create a problem. But alloyed with that is the fact that if you don't know how your safety equipment works properly, you have no experience of it, you are doing something new in an emergency. If you reach for that throw line and you've never actually thrown that throw line before, do you know that it hasn't got like a label inside that's got a little tag that's hanging onto a thing which means it can't be thrown? You have no clue. If you've never actually blown up your life jacket, do you know that the cylinder is completely seated home and firm in its thread and it's not just going to fill up one side? You have no scooby. So life-saving equipment, it's like orange and yellow and it's just on the boat and you go, oh, man, you got to pay for it because you know they say you got to pay for it before we can do X, Y, Z. Or, but use it. Like It's not a problem to use it. What's the lifetime of a jacket? Well, a modern inflatable life jacket, if you're doing commercial stuff, you're not allowed to keep them more than five years. And because it's something which is rolled up tight and tucked away, you want to be thinking about how that material is stuffed together. Again, when I've done a lot of camping stuff with Outward Bound, if you get the fly sheet from a tent and you fold it really like super nicely and tuck it away the way that our storeman used to ask us to do it in Hong Kong, in the end, where those corners come together on that fold, it will wear in those corners and then the fly sheet is no longer waterproof. The same comes with a life jacket. If you fold it, absolutely perfectly every time you put it away it will wear at two points up on top of your shoulders where the top section of the bladder and the side sections of the bladders where you have to fold in and then fold down think like origami style there's going to be a little point there where that material is very tightly folded and so if you've got a jacket which is hardly being uh, opened hardly being used but it's being put on put off you're just wearing through in that point and you do not want to be going in the water and then discovering you've got two little vent holes above your shoulders. So getting your jackets out, having a look at them, yeah, it's the, you know, particularly with the modern jackets, you unpack it and like, man, it's like this octopus of like tape and, and stuff, but that's fine, that's okay. Just, just work out how it works. Maybe it takes 15 minutes. Sit down, have a look at it. You know, you don't have to discharge the cylinder. Just blow it up by the, uh, the the little tube that's there. And then you can understand how it works, repack it, and become really happy with this piece of equipment. So, um, my God, how do we get onto all that? Yeah, oh, blowing them up. Yeah, so blow them up regularly and just make sure they work. Okay, not that's not exactly too hard to do, is it? Um, just running down this a little bit more. Ah, now children, that's really important. Okay, let's have a quick chat about that. So children's life jackets, um, there's a difference. Children should not be put into modern inflating uh, life jackets, okay? I've got, let's pick up a brand new life jacket here and it says not less than 40 kilos and uh, not less than 68 centimeters around the chest. I can't even begin to imagine how many inches 68 centimeters is. Uh, Anybody know? 10, uh, I don't know what I'm working out here, like 30 inches, is that right? That seems quite big. All right, so let's say 68 centimeters, let's just go with that. <laughs> but you cannot put them on children, okay? If they're, if a modern life jacket goes on to a kid, he's, don't worry, you'll grow into it, that kind of thing. What's gonna happen is gonna slip out of it if he's ever he or she is ever required to use the thing, right? Um, the thing that's also key is that the weight distribution in a child's body is different from an adult. A child's head is disproportionately large and heavy for the body. So if they're in a life jacket which has been designed to support an adult, 
it's relying to get that inclination and the rollover. It's relying on the weight of the body below the head. Children's life jackets are identified often by the fact that they have a collar which goes round behind the head, which then helps to support the child's head when they're in the water. So it would be extremely unusual for a child much below 12 or 14 years old, I imagine, maybe maybe a little bit more, but certainly if they're, you know, if they're under 100 pounds, if they're using a booster seat, if they can't go on the ride at the at Disney World, they're probably too small to have a modern inflating life jacket on. They need a PFD life jacket, which, uh, no, let me get that right. They need a PFD style life jacket where it's got the foam built into it, but it becomes a class four life jacket, a, uh, a life jacket that can roll you over by the fact that it's got a collar on. So again, looking back to why people don't wear life jackets, when you're small, you probably have that experience of having to wear the life jacket with the big flappy hood thing behind you or big flappy collar thing behind your head. And that's perhaps colored your view of like what a life jacket is. That jacket is appropriate for children. As you get older, there's, there's other options. Um, anything else that's in this is important. Um, well, they have to have a light on them of an intensity of uh, 0.75 of a candle uh, in all directions at the, of the upper hemisphere. That's gonna be like a 100 lumens, something like that. Not very bright, but certainly bright enough that um, it can be seen in the nighttime. It's gonna have to have retro reflective tape on it. If we get into a more modern sort of style of, um, of regulation for this, it's gonna have that tape that when you shine a torch onto it, it shines the light back directly towards the person with the head torch. It's gonna have crotch straps on it if it's an ocean jacket because you wanna make it that it doesn't ride up and off the person while they're wearing it. And it's gonna have a spray hood that can roll down from the top. Now spray hood, let's talk about spray hoods for a second. So spray hoods are part really of uh, ocean life jackets and they are not required on inshore jackets which always has me confused because they fulfill a very important role which I think can happen inshore or offshore. So the spray hood is normally stowed up at the top of the life jacket. It's rolled in tight and you deploy the life jacket and then when you've got a moment, you kind of calm yourself down, you reach up above you uh, behind the, the top section of the inflated life jacket and you should find this rolled up piece of normally yellow and, uh, and clear plastic, uh, the kind of weird shower cap type thing which you pull down over your head. In fact, I had a group of uh, crew once, we had a kind of life jacket we were using which used to deploy very, very easily. Not that it was inflating, but it was just basically falling out of its um, little uh, cover. And uh, they used to reach behind them and then put the spray hood over their head as like kind of casual rain protection. It's definitely not what it's for. It, uh, they got stopped doing it, but it was pretty funny at the time. But um, the spray hood rolls down, it goes over your face. Then what it does is a very important role, which we can discuss now in terms of like, you know, what happens when you go into the water with a life jacket. When you're in the water, Obviously, as you go into the water, um, if the water is cold, you're gonna have this involuntary gasp. When you're taught to do jumps into cold water from a commercial point of view, you must cover your own nose and mouth with your hand and, uh, and hold onto your life jacket so you can make the jump. The hand over the face and mouth is to stop the cold water involuntary gasp, which can make you suck in seawater at uh, that first point of entry into the water. What happens afterwards is that um, you're in the waves, you're in your life jacket, and there's a natural inclination to turn and to uh, try and face where you think your rescue is gonna come from, to keep turning towards the boat. 
that's an error. The life jacket, the life jacket light, the retroflective tape, the coloring of the life jacket, that whole thing is there to make you a kind of um, the most easily identifiable in the water and the most easily rescued element. It's not really going to be helped very much more by you turning and looking at your rescuer as they get closer to you. What can happen though is as you turn and you've got your face into the waves, uh, you can then start taking in water. And just the same as the involuntary gasp from your initial entry to the water, if that what happens, you've then got seawater in your lungs. So let's imagine you have a successful uh, rescue, they come and get you, they get you back on board the boat, it's all great, you're coughing a little bit because you're taking in some water, you're down below, you're having coffee, you're still coughing a little bit, they warm you right up, they put you in your bunk, you're still coughing a little bit. If that is not managed correctly and it starts to go down a negative path, you can end up dying or being seriously affected by secondary drowning. Primary drowning, you know, you can kind of guess that one, you, you can't breathe properly, you're in the water, you drown. Secondary drowning is when the inside of your lungs is being so badly irritated by the salt water which went in there which is acidic, by the flora and fauna which is part of the seawater which may not um, come out of your lungs quite as easily. Remember how badly um, seawater stinks when you've like let it sit in a filter or something or let it sit in a water line you finally bleed it off, it's got a terrible smell to it. It's because the flora and fauna, the things that live in the seawater, are dying because the water's dried out or the, the conditions have changed in the water and suddenly you've got dead rotting stuff inside your lungs. So secondary drowning will start with just a kind of a coughing and then you get that wet kind of rumbling bubbling sound which is called a rowel sound down in your lungs and then you've got the uh, limitation on your lungs exchanging oxygen in and out of your body and that is secondary drowning. So even when someone goes into the water and you've rescued them um, straight away, if they have any evidence at all that they've taken in water and it's vaguely possible that you can do it, you still have to take them back to the shore because what is the definition of a mayday? It's grave and imminent danger to the vessel or a member of the crew. If they're on their bunk coughing because crap is rotting inside their lungs and their body is going into pulmonary edema, it's starting to produce fluid to deal with this irritation in the lungs and they can't breathe properly, their life is still in grave or imminent danger. So secondary drowning we have to still be very aware of and that's what that shield does. It's just thin plastic, it's normally ringed by yellow. Um, I guess that brings in a question, why, why is it that we're always going for yellow and these things, you know, why not orange, why not this and that? Yellow is the first color that we can see as light levels increase. So nighttime, you're out and about on the boat and you're using the rods in your eyes. You've heard of this before, you've got rods and cones in your eyes. The rods are responsible for the vision that you have at low light, which is called your scotopic vision. And then the cones uh, are able to activate at higher light levels, allow you to perceive color, and that's called photopic vision. So at that low light level, which exists, you know, just at dawn, there is a moment where you can see color for the first time. And if you take a moment to notice that, you'll realize that the first color that we're able to see is yellow, which is one of the reasons that so much safety gear relies on yellow coloration. It's also interestingly a way of defining um, the sunrise. When the sun is at the horizon, then we would say that it is sun 
sunrise, like that's actual sunrise. When the sun is six degrees below the horizon, then we're at called, what's called civilian sunrise, which is where you get this shift from um, looking and seeing only in black and white and then going to color. And when the sun is 12 degrees below the horizon, which is called naval sunrise, uh, when the, the horizon is lit enough that we can see the stars and we can see the horizon to get our star fix. So coming back to the little uh, shield that goes over your head, whether you're on inshore waters or offshore waters, it's still really key that you have the ability to put that over. If it's gonna be a little bit longer, if there is a bit of a chop, remember your head when you're in the water is only about one foot. That's why it's so difficult to see people that go into the water if you don't have retroreflective tape, if you don't have yellow coloration or it's nighttime, it's very hard to see a person. Most waves uh, out in the ocean are going to be a lot bigger than one foot, which is the maximum that your head is going to be. So any wave can slap into your face and any wave can give you that issue of um, uh, secondary drowning. Bear in mind also that that shield, when it comes over, is rolled down from behind the bladder. It also helps to reduce uh, the wind chill on your head and stave off hypothermia. But if you are considering buying or you have a jacket which is for use in uh, coastal waters that you're not specified to have that, I gotta say uh, crotch straps. <laughs> crotch straps are a funny thing. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm wearing the life jacket, but I'm not wearing the crotch straps. It's like, okay, well, at least we're halfway there. But uh, as the jacket is on your upper body, when it inflates, it's gonna wanna go up and you're gonna slowly start making your way down with all your heavy gear on. If the straps aren't in place, um, it could well ride up and over your head or actually start to limit your ability to, you know, it's gonna ride at the surface. If you're slowly making your way down inside the life jacket, you're slowly making your way down below the surface. The other thing is that if you're unconscious, it does roll you over, you are breathing, and then you're rescued from the water. If the crotch straps aren't in place, um, your arms and your shoulders and your upper body will be completely limp because you're unconscious and then all that happens is as the jacket starts to pull underneath your armpits with the, the, its main belt it'll just fold your arms up alongside your ears and it'll slip right off your body so that is what the crotch straps are for so crotch straps are irritating but find a way is the answer to that just find a way because if the unexpected happens you need it. Like modern seat belts in cars now have that thing where they um, explosively kind of sh tighten up, which gives you the ability to um, uh, you know, be really restrained in your seat. You also have angled padding in the bottom of the seat, which means you, it's called anti-submarining contours to the lower swab of the seat. That means that you won't slip underneath the belt. There's lots of things designed into it that are there to help you. If you've got the life jacket on, um, and you haven't got these other things in play, you put yourself at risk of that being the way that you shuffled off this mortal coil. Let's get away from the, the, the detailed details of it because that could get extremely dry and extremely boring. Uh, we talked about uh, children. We talked a little bit about the care of life jackets. Um, say a five-year life on a life jacket, you want to be um, getting in there and looking at the life jacket, certainly every time it's used. Uh, you want to be you know, giving it a once-over. Stitching can become abraded. If you're working, uh, or working if you're sailing rather, sorry, on a boat where you've got um, very rough uh, deck uh, coverings, like uh, TBS can do it, uh, Treadmaster can do it, um, any kind of um, grit-based paint can do it. It's a sandpaper, right? It's like 60 grit sandpaper. And if you're sitting in your life jacket or if the life jacket is on the deck, it is subject to being abraded by 
uh, by that deck covering. It's the same with sails. Don't drag sails down the deck because the stitching is proud on the sail and you're dragging it probably over some form of sandpaper. So don't allow the life jackets to go to the deck. Inspect them regularly and then if you're using them a lot, once a month, pump them up, leave them on the sofa with air in it and come back and just check, right? You don't want that 5% softening off, which then means that um, you have a leak and you <laughs> that is not a great piece of safety equipment if you already have a leak and it's only just on your sofa. The thing also with them is that you can wash life jackets very, very gently. You're probably washing them by hand. You're probably washing it with a very mild detergent and you're definitely allowing it to drip dry. The bladders inside the modern inflating life jackets are thermo welded. There's the, the, the different parts of it are heated to put it together, which gives an indicator that they are susceptible to extended periods of heat. You do not want to be heating this thing up by putting it in the tumble dryer. Plus it'll make a crazy noise, all that buckle and stuff going around in there. But you can wash it through. Certainly if life jackets are being used regularly and serviced regularly and looked after, they're not just sitting in a wet, nasty boat for months and months, if not years and years on end. You can, um, after a big voyage at sea, wash them down, let them dry entirely and put them back in the locker. I think that is the province of boats which are using them regularly where mold is not particularly an issue. If you are not um, uh, using them that regularly, you don't want to finish your day sailing by washing your life jacket down and then putting it in the closet because it's going to grow mold. That's just how it's going to end up, okay? So that is when you then take the life jackets off the boat, take them home, wash them down, let them drip dry outside of their covers, and then repack them and having tested them and uh, take them back to the boat the next time. That's the best way of dealing with that. We talked a little bit about um, uh, children, but alongside never work with children or animals. The other one, I guess, which has to come in here is uh, life jackets for pets. Like life jackets for pets are not covered by any kind of uh, regulation for, I hope, <laughs> relatively obvious reasons. Um, but, you know, some dogs, particularly, I don't think you'd be taking a cat out, but some dogs are better swimmers than others. Some can get uh, fatigued very, very easily. Others will go on for a long time. But all in the end, if they're off the side of the boat, are gonna have a problem. I was actually down in the uh, in Savannah when I did that job recently, bringing the Formula 40 up. And um, I got just a little bit connected in with a story where a dog had gone off someone's uh, boat with a life jacket on, and it was found two days later um, not in the water, it had managed to get itself over to the reed banks and make its way through the reed banks and was found on the road in its life jacket. So it had gone over the side and had that option of surviving because of its life jacket. So um, you've got to make sure they're you know, snugly fitting, they're brightly colored, and a lot of the ones for smaller dogs have got the uh, useful kind of carrying handle on it. You can also get for dogs little booties that go on their feet, which give them a rubberized traction option. Otherwise, their pads and their claws make them very susceptible to um, skidding off the boat. But um, yeah, it's worth considering, you know? It's, uh, if you like the dog enough to take it out on the boat, then give it a chance, give it a life jacket. Okay, so let's get all the way around here because uh, I'm chit-chat, chit-chat as always about life jackets. Like, where, where do I come down on this? So I have been around sailing now for a long, long time, okay? And I'm uh, still enjoying it and I'm still touch wood, uh, not been in the water uh, unexpectedly. Um, what am I doing to secure myself on a day-to-day -day basis? So I enjoyed wearing <clears throat> a Spinlock life jacket uh, from 2008 until about 2016, I guess. And then I started to become aware of the fact that there was another kind of life jacket on the market. And I looked at the details of it. I knew personally the uh, brother and sister 
combination who had uh, started the company, designed this life jacket and brought it to the market. And I started to realize that very, very clearly they had been looking at what a life jacket does, what are the pitfalls of a life jacket and had come up with a design which is uh, unique and revolutionary and is now the life jacket that we have on the Spartan boat. So Spartan each year does about 15,000 miles. We welcome about 300 people on board each year. Uh, we're only looking to develop that further now as we're coming out of COVID and we understand what's happening next. And every single person that comes on our boats will be wearing a life jacket from Team O. So just to be clear, there's no paid promotion here. There's no uh, no uh, <laughs> big bag of money being sent. Although, you know, I'll take it. It's not a problem. But um, the Team O life jacket is, is unique because it incorporates all the Mon features, all the Solas uh, features which we've been talking there uh, about, but it also incorporates a very, very key design element, which is the back toe system. So before we get into exactly this life jacket, which I want to introduce and kind of uh, uh, give you my opinion on, let's talk about the issue we, we just touched on earlier, tethers. We said that the life jacket does something else. It allows us to remain connected to the boat, which is awesome. But inherent to that, and unfortunately, the center of a number of deaths through the years has been the fact that people end up being dragged by the tether in the water, and then they drown because of that. What happens if you go over the side of the boat with a tether on? So you are on the foredeck, you are on the lee side, and a sail hits you, you slip, whatever it is, and you go over the lifelines. Life jacket inflates, and you're connected to the boat. So fundamentally, you're in a very good position you're above the water and you are still very close to the boat what's not necessarily thought about all the time or hasn't been before this uh, jacket is the fact that if you end up getting towed by the boat you're going to die there was unfortunately a group of Greenpeace demonstrators a number of years ago now who to try and stop uh, I think it was a whaling ship or something you know God love them, they had the heart in absolutely the right place, but their method was that they got magnets, attached them to the side of the boat, and then connected themselves to the, the magnets and got off their, um, their, their, their support boat, which meant they were then in the water alongside a boat that was doing eight or 10 knots. Basically, the way the hydrodynamics goes is you cannot swim faster than one knot, and over about two knots, you start to go underwater, and over four knots, you cannot even get yourself up to the surface of the water, let alone control the situation you're in. So that means, you know, put the self-denial aside. Even if you're out in your 4K SB and you're tooting along at maxi chat, which is three and a half, four, five knots, whatever it is, if you go into the water and you start being dragged, you're going to drown, okay? So being tethered to the boat is super awesome as long as it comes with this other thing of how are we going to negate the very clear and very well understood problem of the fact you're gonna get dragged alongside the boat. The solution which Oscar and Lauren Mead came up with with their life jacket, the back toe life jacket, is that the front connection point where you normally clip on, which gives you all of the um, utility and function that you would uh, want in a, in a life jacket, all of that is there but then when you go into the water there's an extra cord that you pull or somebody else pulls and that releases that front connection point which is very cleverly integrated into life jacket it immediately deploys and wraps itself around your body and up to a back toe position you're connected at the front 
the system is activated, it unrips itself from a kind of Velcro channel that's inside the life jacket, and suddenly, instead of being towed forwards by the boat, you're being towed on your back, and your life jacket's inflated, and you're 120 mil above the water, and everything is starting to look a lot better for your survival. So let's think about a situation. Uh, Bob and Jane go out on their boat, and Bob is being the ass that he normally is up on the bow, and Jane uh, is not really noticing because she's kind of, you know, checking out everything else that's going on with the boat. And then she looks forward and Bob is no longer there. She thinks, Jesus. So she runs forward, clipped on. Thank goodness Bob is in the water alongside the boat. Okay. So she starts to reach down. She starts to get a hold of him. He's got his face in the water. He's trying to turn this way and that way. She's thinking, Jesus, I've got to help him. Then she realizes, no, actually what I've got to do is I've got to go back and I stop this boat. So she gets back to the back of the boat. She gets the jib, she rolls the jib up, she gets the mainsail, she drops the mainsail. Like she's totally cooking, she's totally on top of it, no problem at all. She gets back to the front of the boat. Now, even if she's been super quick, she's about a minute and a half, two minutes into this situation. Where exactly is Bob at at this point? Because even if it was a little boat not going that fast, we're not in a Marvel film. Bob's already dead. That's the reality. Now, it might be that you can kind of half clamber up on the side of the boat. That's awesome. Now you're breathing. But you're already outside the parameters of in any way safe, in any way controllable, and you're basically dealing with uh, luck and adrenaline and uh, Hail Mary. Now, let's try a different situation. Bob goes to the front. But this is kind of like a super hot, crazily skilled, like this guy's like a Renaissance man. And he and Jane together have specified that they've got back to life jackets. But unfortunately, due to, you know, some unforeseen heroic circumstances, Bob goes into the water. Jane goes up to the front. Bob's in the water. She reaches down and pulls his back toe release system, at which point he spins around and is now being towed backwards by the boat. He says, my goodness, darling, you've done so well. She says, I know, I'll just go make a cup of tea and then I'll drop the mainsail. The point is, He's alongside the boat with his mouth out the water and he's actually able to do something about it. Now, high side versus low side. If you go off the low side, what ends up happening is the hydrodynamics are sweeping you under and into the boat. You're getting cracked up against the boat. If you go off the high side and you've got a short tether, you're much more likely to be kind of in the air, sort of alongside the boat, as long as the boat is pretty hard heeled over. And that's something worth noting that in any life jacket, tether, uh, man overboard situation, you want to be making sure that your casualty immediately goes onto the high side, not the low side. So crash tag, crash stop the boat, whatever you need to do, but get them on the high side. You're much more likely to clear them from the water, whether they're being front towed or back towed. But any circumstance where someone is not uh, identified quickly and they're in the water on any kind of uh, situation going over the side of the boat, if they're not brought back on board the boat inside of a very short period of time, you got a serious problem, serious problem. The back tow life jacket sorts that out. So on board the Spartan boats now, Challenger, we ordered them, was it last year, the newest uh, variety, 18 jackets on there. It's the same price as getting a high quality uh, jacket from any other manufacturer. It's very easy to put on, like easy to don. Certainly that one minute rule, like people have pretty much got them on before I teach them how to put them on. It's got the light. It's got the, uh, the retroflective tape. It's got the uh, hood that rolls down from above. This is a super high class 
piece of equipment, but embedded in it is the solution for this other problem. There was an unfortunate scenario that happened, I think it was 2002, with a yacht called Lion in the UK. There's an MAIB, the Marine Accident Investigation Bureau. You can go online and have a look at the MAIB report for Lion. And unfortunately, in that circumstance, the skipper went over the side, wasn't uh, noted very quickly as a couple of minutes went past. He was tethered, he was alongside the boat, but unfortunately by the time the boat had been brought to near stop and he'd been recovered onto the deck, he was gone. Yeah? There are enough deaths each year from people drowning which could have been saved with life jackets. About 70% of the drowning incidents that happen with bound boaters each year could have been saved with a life jacket. Of those that have got life jackets on that still die, it's this being dragged in the water thing which is the problem. So for me, you know, people write to me and say, what do you think about this? What do, is your opinion? For me, there's only one solution, the backtow life jacket from Timo, because it covers this other thing. So look at it again from my point of view. As I'm going forward now to doing this around the world um, event, I'm looking at the fact of like, what's my safety option? So I'm always gonna have my deck assist belt on, which has got my knife, it's got my Gerber. What else have I got? What happens for me is that once I get within about 200 miles, 250 miles of shore, I'm aware of the fact that it's much more likely that I'm around shipping, that I'm much more likely to be able rescued from a helicopter, and then I go onto what's called my inshore rig as a solo sailor. So inside my life jacket, I put my AIS transponder, my automated information system transponder. That is able to ping a signal to other surrounding vessels saying, hey, there's someone in the water, come help. I also have my uh, PLB, my personal life-saving beacon, which is an EPIRB, an electronic position indicating radio beacon, which sends a message to a satellite saying, hey, look, in this area, there's someone's got a problem. And I go into that rig. I normally also have a, a waterproof VHF that I put into the pocket of my um, uh, jacket, and I have a little pack of personal flares because I guess, you know, I do this as a job, so that's kind of how I, <laughs> that's how I've decided it's best to do it. But when I look at that situation, I think, oh, life jacket, solo sailor, my, my jack stays are pretty far inboard, so the chance of me getting all the way to the uh, side deck and over the side into the water are relatively low. But the uh, advice from uh, every life-saving organization, from Rourke through to the RWA through to anybody, is that you wanna be using the shortest tether possible at all times so that you're not as far into the water if you do go over the side. Centrally mounted jack stays are another part of that. I'm looking at the fact that for me to be able to run up down the side deck as a solo sailor and have the ability to move around, I often have to use uh, the longer tether on my life jacket arrangements and I swap to the short one when I'm in the cockpit or I'm on the bow. With the longer tether, it is possible for me to end up in the water and my boat's doing like 12 to 18 knots. Like if I go in the water there, I'm pooched real fast and for all of the macho kind of ideas, I'm gonna drag myself back on board and save myself and all the rest of it, the likelihood is with hydraulic forces being what they are, I might not be able to. People have this idea they can swim along behind boats and they definitely can't. They have a feeling that they can wade through rivers and they can't. And you have a feeling that you'd be able to get back on the boat if you went over the side and you can't. So I'm looking at it and thinking, what's the best possible chance that I have of getting back on this boat if I went over the side on a long tether when I'm on my side deck jack stays? And the best possible option for me is that I can pull that extra thing on that back toe life jacket, then I'm on my back. And then I've got options. Because if I can breathe, I can make a plan, 
I can look around for options, I can problem solve, I can perhaps get back on the boat. But if I am immediately thrown over the side of the boat and into the situation of being not able to breathe and I'm struggling for my life, the chance of me getting back on the boat are exactly FA. So what's my opinion? My opinion is that the back toe life jacket is the one that you wanna get because if you're connected to the boat, you're much more likely to survive. If you've got a life jacket on when you go in the water, you're much more likely to survive. And if you have the back toe life system that TMO provides, you're much more likely to survive. So <laughs> they always say with podcasts that you're better to like put your flag in the sand, say what you think, say what's your opinion, and then people will like it or not like it, but at least they'll know. So I'll tell you right now. <laughs> It's back to life jacket. <laughs> and if you're coming on our boats, don't ask me if you could bring your spin lock life jacket because the answer is no. Good, right, well I hope in there somewhere there's something that you can uh, take out of that. I think, I'm, I think I've learned while I'm doing this as well that uh, this, this kind of twilight zone which I exist in where I'm saying to people, no, no, I'm fine. You know, I can. Uh, this is okay. I say things like, "This is my back garden." You know, I'm, I'm, I know how to, I know how to operate the boat like this. That is me being immersed in self-denial to a certain degree. Um, being connected to the boat is very, very important. Having a life jacket on if you go into the water is very, very important. And being able to manage that moment where you're tethered but alongside the boat is very, very important. The one thing I will say, I guess, to finish up with the uh, Timo life jacket is that it's um, it's got a couple of elements about it which I particularly like, which have helped me. Um, I don't have a problem with Spinlock life jackets. I have been wearing them for, you know, like I've worn them for like hundreds of thousands of miles. Um, one key thing in whichever life jacket you get is that it has to be really comfortable. Uh, it has to be really comfortable so that you choose to put it on and that you forget that you've got it on. So for me, I have found a life jacket in the Timo jacket, which is very comfortable to wear. I don't feel like I'm being imposed on. I'm actually gonna do a video a review of the Timo life jacket, which um, I'll link it in the description once it's created. So if you're getting this podcast literally as it's been produced, um, I haven't produced the video yet, but within the next uh, couple of days, I'll have made the video review. I wanna show you some of the details on that jacket. There's things whereby, you know, you don't have all sorts of weird bits of like tape ribbons kind of hanging off it, which can get caught up in winches. Um, it's got a very good neckline on it, which keeps the jacket back away from the base of your neck and stops you kind of getting craned over, shoulders rolled in, and, and really feeling kind of like hunched up and crunched up by the life jacket. There's a lovely detail on it which was pointed out to me, which is that the way that the leg loops are attached to the main um, belt, the way that they're attached, if you're not gonna wear the leg loops, it keeps the little connectors uh, out the way. But if you are wearing the leg loops and a little bit of tension in there, it actually tips that waist belt just slightly outwards away from the body, which for, for women who obviously have a different shape at the front of their body, it just tips that belt away and makes it a lot more comfortable for breasts to go underneath there. And for bigger guys, whether it be muscle or just the, the raw power of body fat, um, it again, it just changes the, the, the shape of that main belt so that it is a lot more comfortable to wear. You have to find whatever life jacket you go for, it has to be one that you're really confident that you can wear it comfortably and that you're happy to put it on and you just see it as like putting a seatbelt on uh, when you get into a car. Just, I think, go out, put on life jackets, see how you like them, see, you know, the, all life jacket manufacturers now do things in lots of different colors. Uh, the technology is improving and improving so that the uh, ergonomics of the life jacket are really, really good. But if you do go to the marketplace, 
have a think about um, this situation of being dragged alongside the boat. Uh, in the description of the podcast is a link to uh, Team O's website if you're interested in finding out more about that life jacket. And there's a discount code there which allows you to get a little bit of uh, money shaved off that. Hopefully get that into your Christmas stocking. If you've got somebody who you want to keep safe at sea, you can tell them, hey, here's your Christmas present. Listen to this podcast. Then you'll find out why it's such a good Christmas present. What else is going on? Um, as I say, there's some news I want to share with you about the West Around the World uh, campaign. We have got some major money coming in. It's very, very good. But I have had to take the compromise, as there often is in life, that I cannot go right now. The sponsors, which are a group of very wise and uh, dedicated supporters of this, they are willing for the boat to bear just the Nova Scotia branding, which you know from listening to this is so important to me. I really want to do this for the province. I really want to do this for Nova Scotia and Nova Scotia's uh, options next year. But their argument was if you want to be truly safe on this and you want to make a really good job of it because of the late hour that they've got involved, they're much happier if I go next year. But what's really interesting is that more money for more projects to support Nova Scotia and for Spartan to be involved in will be coming down the, the, the turnpike. So let me tell you all about that in the next uh, podcast and then you get a, a feeling for it. But yeah, good news on that front that the money's coming and it does mean that I don't have to go to the uh, Southern Ocean this year, which I was just informed by my friend Sitzka, uh, an iceberg the size of Holland has broken off of Antarctica and is busy carving off smaller bits, um, which is gonna create uh, quite the issue for anybody that's down there. So maybe there's highs and lows, and you know, one of the elements of tenacity is that you have to compromise. I still really wanna do this. We have put a huge amount of work into this boat in the past uh, five months. The boat is in great condition, apart from the rigging and now I think we've got the money together uh, or certainly 60% of it so that we can get the rig done. That's brilliant but the compromise that allows us to get to our goal is we're just going to do it a little bit later but next year as I say is a hundred years of the blue nose. Maybe there's something in this where I can actually go and train in Nova Scotia waters which I feel are some of the most challenging in the world. I can actually be on the water talking to people from the boat here in Nova Scotia and spreading this message of positivity about the province and I can do that in the here and now rather than doing what is always the big problem with sailing and sponsorship which is brand the boat up and then disappear over the horizon. Maybe it's better to be doing this now and looking forward to the event rather than having done the event and you know may or may not succeed of course. Remember this is the impossible voyage. This is going wrong way around the world. This is the one that only six people have ever done. So maybe we get more mileage out of it by actually going a little later, more prepared and, uh, and then get uh, a story which we can be really proud of from it. So I'm excited to share that with you. But as the sun sets through the trees here in Nova Scotia, just catching the light on the beautiful oranges and reds and yellows, which are such a characteristic part of this wonderful part of the world at this time of year, I'd like to say to you, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound and continuing to keep those around you sane during the crazy days of COVID-19. Talk to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.